Good morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Start reading in Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks, Mallory. Well, we are continuing our study this morning in the book of Romans together. Um, And we come to a familiar passage this morning. Several of those verses that Mallory just read, you probably are pretty familiar with, especially verses 20 to 25 there, the whole, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. Um, verse 24 and 25 there, the, the cry of wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, you're probably also at least somewhat aware as well that this is a, a tricky and even heavily debated passage of scripture, that, that there are Christians and pastors and scholars that have pretty different views on what's going on in this chapter. Like Romans 7 is just one of those passages that everybody knows Romans 7. You know, it's like, oh, Romans 7. Yeah, like everybody, everybody knows this one and knows kind of that, yeah, this is a tricky passage. So when I was first asked to preach this text, um, I was a little bit hesitant because I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, But as I've been studying and preparing for this morning, 
I've gotten really excited about this passage um, and, and not because of the debate and the controversy around it. Like, goodness knows we don't need any more of that in 2020, um, especially this week. Um, but, but what's gotten me excited about preaching this passage this morning is that after the last few weeks in Romans 6 and in Romans 7, um, I think that this is exactly what we need to hear next. Um, you know, it's almost like Paul planned it that way on purpose or something. So, so if you remember... What we saw in Romans chapter 6, 1 to 14, is that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And then we saw in Romans 6, 15 to 23, that we're freed from slavery to sin and that we become slaves to righteousness. And then just last week, we saw in Romans 7, 1 to 6, that we've died to the law. And so then the call from each of those passages was to stop living like who we were and to live like who we are. And so, oh man, like all those sermons have been incredibly helpful uh, these last few weeks. But at the same time, I can see where a couple of dangers creep in from Romans 6 and 7. And I I felt both of them myself. Um, First danger is the danger of discouragement or or even despair. Um, I I can see how you could hear these last three sermons and, and completely believe that they're true and right And how you could be saying, yes, I'm dead to sin. I'm free from sin. I'm dead to the law. I need to live like who I am. But at the same time, just be really discouraged because that's not what it feels like. Like it doesn't feel like you're dead to sin and free from sin. It doesn't feel like that. Like you continue to struggle with sin and battle sin. And it doesn't feel like it's going away anytime soon. So so if that's something you've thought or felt these last few weeks, then, then this sermon is for you. And on the other side, the other danger that I think that can creep in from Romans 6 and 7 is pride. Um, the danger there is that you hear these truths, that you're dead to sin and freed from sin, and you hear this call to live like who you are, and, and whether you would say it out loud or not, um, you think, okay, no problem, I can do that. And it leads you to underestimate the seriousness and the depth of the sin that's still in you and to overestimate your ability to walk in obedience. And so if that's been you at all the last few weeks, then this sermon's for you as well. And so I think our passage this morning really has two goals in light of how it flows out of the previous chapter and a half. And so for those of us that have come away with too high of an idea of our ability to do what Romans 6 and 7 have called us to do, I think these verses are intended to humble us, to show us just how deep our sin problem is and just how powerless we are to walk in obedience in our own strength. And for those of us who've come away discouraged by our ongoing struggle with sin, as much as we believe everything that Romans 6 and 7 have said, I think these verses are meant to give us hope, um, to show us that the struggle that we're experiencing that we're experiencing isn't evidence that we're not Christians, but that it's actually evidence that we are. And to give us hope that, when, that while life in this fallen body is a war, not a triumph, uh, the triumph is coming. And to give us hope to continue to fight until that day comes. And so before we jump into our passage this morning, I want to take just a minute up front to deal with the different views around this part of Romans 7 and how to interpret this part of Romans 7, because everything that I've already said is based on how I read these verses. Um, and so 
we could really easily spend our entire time on this. Um, when I was kind of researching and studying and looking around at things this week, I saw that John Piper preached six sermons just on verses 14 to 25 when he was going through Romans. And his main point through all six sermons was just to give reasons for why he comes down where he does on interpreting this passage. So we're not going to do that this morning. Um, it's great. Like, they're, they're really helpful. You ought to go listen to them or read them. Um, they're really good. But we're not going to do that this morning. But I think at the same time, it's, it is important to know that there are different views on how to interpret Romans 7 and that really solid pastors and scholars come down on both sides and it's not a clear-cut, easy decision at all when it comes to how to best understand what's going on in this passage. The, the arguments are, are really strong on both sides. Um, so here's, here's kind of the main issue at, at, that's at stake here. The, the, the difference really comes down to who the I is throughout these verses. You see it all through this passage. You heard it when Mallory was reading it. Like verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came Sin came alive and I died. Um, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And there's a lot more. Like this, this I, me, my shows up something like 24 times in verses 7 to 25. So, so the question is, who is this I? Who's, who's speaking here? And there's, to, to answer that question, there's really a couple of other questions you have to answer first to determine that. And so the first question is, is Paul here, Paul who wrote the book of Romans, is he speaking as himself or is he speaking as someone else? So that's the first question. So some would say, that the most natural way to read these verses is that Paul is speaking autobiographically. Like he's using himself as an example to make his point throughout these verses here. Others would say that Paul is using a rhetorical device um, where he's taking on another character and speaking as if he's that character. So if you go that way, you also have to figure out who this character is that Paul's portraying as he's talking. But it's possible that he's using this rhetorical device and taking on a character and speaking as that character in these verses. So, so that's the first question you have to answer. Is Paul speaking as himself or is he speaking as someone else? The other question you have to answer is, regardless of whether Paul is speaking as himself or as someone else, is he speaking as a Christian or is he speaking as a non-Christian? And so if Paul's speaking as himself, he could be speaking of himself now as a Christian, or he could be speaking of himself before he became a Christian. Or if Paul's speaking as someone else, he could be taking on a character that is a Christian or a, Christ, or a character that's not a Christian. So, so that's, that's the question here. Who's the I in these verses? Is it Paul or is it someone else? Is it a Christian or is it a non-Christian? And so, as you can imagine, like, there's a number of different combinations and possibilities in there, but most people seem to come down on a couple of main options. And so, one of the main options, then, is that Paul is speaking as himself from his current perspective as a believer. So, that takes on a couple of different meanings because there's two main sections in this passage, and in the first section, um, he's speaking in the past tense, so he's thinking back about his experience in the past from his perspective now as a Christian. And then in the second section, he speaks in the present tense 
of his current experience as a Christian. So, so that would be one of the main positions, that Paul speaking as himself from his current perspective as a believer. The other main position seems to be that Paul is taking on a character, and then specifically that that character is an unbelieving Jew. And so this view tends to focus especially on that second section where the I is speaking in the present tense. And, and we could go really deep explaining why someone would go that direction with this passage, but trying to, trying to sum up what they would, I think, say, the, the main reason that would be that they would say that a Christian could not say the things that you see in those verses about being of the flesh, sold under sin, nothing good dwells in me, not having the ability to carry out what's right, being captive to the law of sin and those kinds of things. They would say there's no way that a Christian could say those things. At the same time, they would say that a Jew would say the things that you see in those verses about agreeing with the law, that it's good, that they desire to do what's right, they delight in the law of God, things like that. And so especially in light of what Paul has already said in Romans 6 and what he's about to say in Romans 8, those who hold to this view would say that, that there's no way that Paul could be speaking of himself as a Christian. So the most logical way to understand these verses is that Paul is speaking as an unbelieving Jew. And so like there's way more complexity to both of those views than we have time to get into this morning. But hopefully that gives you enough of a sense of what each side would say that you can see how someone could hold to either position. And, and again, solid pastors and Bible scholars hold to each position. Like this is not something that makes you a heretic if you get it wrong. Uh, I, can, I can almost guarantee in the room here this morning that there are people who think that this has to be a believer and there are, there's people in, in here this morning that think there's no way that that is a believer. And, and so even among us as elders, like I haven't gone around and polled all, all the other elders, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's differences of opinions between us on this either. And, and that's okay. Like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay to have different opinion on this. But um, I'm the one preaching this morning, so sorry. Like, this is, this is what you get. Um, and so even this week, as I've been studying this more deeply and trying to understand both sides, like, through that, I've, I really have. Like, I've gotten more convinced on what I think is going on in this passage, and I'm, I'm going to preach it that way this morning. But I also see the strengths and, and the argument on the other side, and I mean, who knows? Like, maybe, maybe eventually they'll convince me, but... The point in all that is don't let different opinions like this derail you as you study the Bible. Um, listen and learn from others who see it differently than you. Um, do your best to come to a conclusion that you can hold because it does matter. Like it really does matter in this passage. How you interpret this passage and the applications you draw from it will be different depending on where you land. But especially on a passage like this that's so evenly divided on how solid Christians interpret them, like hold those conclusions loosely, be willing to continue to listen and, and learn and grow in your understanding. And, and so um, all that to say, at least for today, like this morning, um, Sunday morning, November 8th, like if you couldn't tell already where, where I'm at and where I'm going to preach this from today is like I'm convinced that the I in Romans 7, 7 to 25 here is Paul speaking as himself from his position as a Christian as he was writing this letter. And so I, I could go into a whole lot of reasons why. Um, we'll touch on a few of them even as we go through the text. But, but first of all, just to set it all up, like I'm convinced first that that's just the most natural way to read this passage. Um, that, if, that if Paul was going to take on the character um, using a rhetorical device like we talked about, that, that 
the normal way to do that would have been to give some clues or some triggers that you're doing that, and, and he just doesn't do that here. And second, like I'm convinced the more I study this that the words and phrases that sound like they contradict Romans 6 and Romans 8 don't actually contradict, but actually supplement and complement what Paul is saying there on both sides of this passage. And so that Romans 7 is intended to be read in context with Romans 6 and 8 so that all of it is more balanced than if any of it stood alone. And so going back then to where I left off a second ago, introducing all this, like I believe the passage, this passage is here to humble us and to give us hope in light of what we've seen so far in Romans 6 and, and the first part of Romans 7 by unpacking then the relationship between the law, sin, and a Christian. And so that's what we're gonna see in the rest of our time here this morning. You can see that on your handout there, um, that in Romans 7, 7 through 12, um, we're gonna see the relationship between the law and sin. And then in verses 13 to 20, we'll see the relationship between the law, sin, and a Christian. And then in verses 21 to 25, we'll see how a Christian responds to sin and the law. And so, oh, my prayer in all this then is that, that the result of all this would be that we would be humbled where we need to be, but that even more so, we would walk out of here this morning full of hope in the triumph that we will one day have over sin because of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. And so look, look with me first then at Romans 7, 7 to 12, and we're gonna see the relationship between sin or the law and sin. Verse seven here, it says, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. So this is the third time since the beginning of chapter six that Paul has used the same structure of asking a what then shall we say question and then responding with this emphatic by no means, like absolutely not. So back in, in chapter six, verse one, he asked, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Um, then 6.15, he asks, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And then now the question here is what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. And so all these are responses to objections that he either was anticipating or that he's heard related to what he had said in the chapters before. And, and all that makes sense in light of what we've studied together the last several weeks that, that Paul would need to deal with this objection here in verse seven. Like, remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles who are in conflict with each other. And, and one of the areas then that they would have naturally been in conflict was their view of the law. Like the Jews would have had a really high regard for it and the Gentiles would have seen it more as that's kind of a Jewish thing. And so one of the things Paul's been doing all through the book is showing how both groups, like those with the law and those without the law, are in the same predicament. Like both are guilty before God. Both are condemned by God. He's also been showing then how they're equally delivered from the wrath of God and declared righteous before God, but that had nothing to do with the law either. It's only by faith in Jesus and Jesus' righteousness being credited to your account. And so in fact, based on everything Paul has said so far, you could get the idea that he has a pretty negative view of the law. Like he's basically said the law doesn't help you. It actually makes things worse. Like just last week in 7.5, Paul said, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So 
so he says there that the law aroused our sinful passions, which ultimately bore fruit for death in us. Like that's not exactly a positive picture of the law. And so in fact, like putting together what Paul has said so far in Romans, it almost comes across as if Paul is using those two words, law and sin, almost interchangeably. And so, so is that what Paul's saying? Is he saying that the law is sin? So, so that's the question that Paul asks and answers here. You can see his initial answer there on your handouts. First, he says the law is not sin. Instead, he says the law illuminates sin. And so you can see that picking back up where we left off in verse seven there. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the word yet there at the beginning of that part that I just read, it has a sense of although or nevertheless. So, so Paul's saying, no, the law's not sin, although if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. So the point is the, the law is not sin, but the law does illuminate sin in the sense of making it known or showing it to be what it is. So we know what sin is and can see sin for what it is through the law. What the law does is it takes away the excuse that we didn't know that a certain sin is sin. Like now we know, now we see it for what it is. But that's not the only relationship between the law and sin. That's what the law does related to sin. But then look at what sin does related to the law. Paul's going to show us two things here. First, you see um, in verse 8, that sin uses the law to stir up sin in us. Uses the law to stir up sin in us. Look at verse 8 there. It says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So we talked about this before earlier in Romans, like this is the forbidden fruit always tastes the sweetest principle. Um, and we've all experienced this. And especially like if you're, if you're a parent, you've seen it in your kids. Um, you may have even used it against your kids with a little reverse psychology, you know, like don't you dare eat that broccoli, whatever you do. Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna eat this broccoli whether you want me to or not. Um, I'm sure nobody here has ever done that. But, um, but, but there, there's just something in us that when we're told we can't have something, that all of a sudden, once it really bad, and even if we couldn't have cared less about it before we were told we couldn't have it. And, and Paul is saying that that something in us is sin. And he says that it uses the law, uses the commandment to stir up sin in us. And so again, I think Paul's using himself as an example here. And he's using one of the 10 commandments, you shall not covet, to illustrate his point. And so he's speaking here in the past tense, looking back on himself in the past, being confronted with that commandment and experiencing the sin in him, grabbing onto that commandment. And instead of that commandment keeping Paul from the sin of coveting, the sin in Paul used that commandment to stir up all kinds of coveting in him. And so it's interesting that Paul uses that, that commandment as his example here because it's, it's basically the only one of the Ten Commandments that has to do with your heart and your desires rather than external actions. So, so the sin in Paul doesn't just create sinful external actions, but it creates sinful internal desires. And, and the point is, like, that's what sin does. It uses the law to stir up sin in us. The other way that sin relates to the law, then you can see this next on your handout here, is that sin uses the law to deceive us and kill us. You pick back up there at the last part of verse eight. It says, for apart from the law, 
Sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul uses language here that echoes Genesis 3. Uh, Just like the the serpent deceived Adam and Eve and their sin resulted in death, sin does the same thing to us. Verse 9 there is one of the verses that makes it really hard to figure out who the I is. Like, could Paul really say that he was alive before the law came? Like, I thought back in chapter 5, he said that when Adam died, we all died. So Paul technically was never alive. But, and, and like, I see the argument there. I just don't think Paul's trying to be that technical here. Like, I think he's, again, using his own experience as an illustration. But he's doing that because we can all relate to it. So for those of you who are Christians here this morning, I mean, can't you relate to what Paul's saying here? Like, wasn't there a time before you had really had your eyes open to the law that, that you were sure that you were alive? And, and then one day, God graciously caused your blind eyes to see and your deaf ears to hear, and you heard the commandment in a different way than you ever had before, and you saw yourself and you saw your sin in a different light than you ever had before. And you realized that you had broken the commandments and that you were a sinner and that you were dead. Like Deuteronomy 8.1 says, "The, the whole commandment I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. But Paul says that instead of life, the commandment proved to be death to him because sin deceived him into breaking it. And, and like we saw at the end of Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And like, isn't that what sin does? It deceives us into believing that the life we're looking for, can, can, we can find it in what sin is offering us. But it, it's a lie. It, it's the same lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden. You won't surely die. God's holding back on you. In fact, he's holding you back. Like eat from that tree and you'll really live. Like sin does that. Sin uses the law and deceives us into thinking that this thing that God told us not to do actually will give us what we want and that we'll truly live if we do what the commandment tells us not to do. But, but when we give in and break the commandment, we find out that it was all a lie and that sin deceived us and it killed us. So that's how sin relates to the law. It uses it to stir up sin in us and it uses it to deceive us and to kill us. But that doesn't mean that the law is sin. In fact, like what it shows us is the exact opposite. That's Paul's whole point in making this argument is that the law isn't sin. You can see that it's next on your handout there. The law itself is good. Like that's Paul's conclusion in verse 12. It says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So even though Paul's been saying some things that sound pretty negative about the law so far in Romans, his point has not been that the law is bad. In fact, he would say the exact opposite. He says that the law is holy and righteous and good. So don't misunderstand what Paul is saying about the law. The law is not the problem. Sin's misuse of the law is the problem. But it goes even deeper than that. And we'll see that next in verses 13 to 20 here. So you can see this next on your handout, the the relationship between the law, sin, and a Christian. Verse 13, 
He says, did that which is good then, and so he's, he's talking about the law here, the thing that he just said in verse 12 is good, so that's, that's the that which is good, is the law. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So here's the point. You can, you can see these, these next couple points on your handout here. The problem is not in the law. The problem is in us. That's the point of what he's saying here. And ultimately what he's gonna say in the next few verses is that the problem is specifically that sin is still dwelling in us. You see that specifically in verses 17 and 20. He repeats this phrase, sin that dwells within me. So, so here in verse 13, Paul is asking and answering another question about the law. So the first question was, is the law sin? And his answer was, absolutely not. The law is good. Now the question is, well then, are you saying that the law that you just said is good is the cause of our death? Because it kind of sounds like that's what you're saying, Paul. And, and again, remember, he just, said, he just said that in verse five. He just said that again here in verse 10. And so his answer to, to that question is, again, no, absolutely not. I'm not saying that the law is the cause of death. So what are you saying, Paul? What is the cause of death in us? And, and Paul says that, that, is, that it's sin. Sin is the cause of death in us. And what the law does is, you can, you can see this next on your handout, the law reveals the depth of the sin still in us. So what he's saying here is that sin uses the law to produce death in us by using it to stir up sin in us and deceive us and kill us. And by doing that, then we see just how sinful sin is and how deep-rooted sin is in us. And so here's what I mean by that. Like if sin were something outside of us or separate from us, you could make the argument that that what we need is we just need the law to show us what sin is. And once we know what it is and see it for what it is, we could protect ourselves from it and stop doing it. But instead, what we see is that sin isn't just an information problem. Because when the law shows us what sin is, we continue to do it with full knowledge of what it is. And by doing that, we, we see that sin isn't outside of us. It's not this outside thing. It's, it's inside of us. Like we, when we continue to sin with full knowledge of what it is through the law, what the law does is show just how deeply rooted in us sin is and just how guilty we are for it. And that, that's exactly the picture then that Paul paints in the next verses here. Look, look at verse 14. This is, that, this is that passage. It's just like, what in the world is he saying here? Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So there's kind of two parallel sections here within these verses. Both of them begin with um, for we know there in verse 14 or, or for I know in verse 18. 
And then both of them end with, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Both, both sections end with that same phrase. And so I'll admit, like this is, this is a pretty bleak picture. Um, look at the two things that Paul says we know or I know. Verse 14 first, he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And, and the result of that then is that he doesn't understand his own actions. He doesn't do what he wants. Instead, he does the very thing he hates. And then second in verse 18, he says he knows that there's nothing good dwelling in him. And the result of that is the same thing. Like he desires to do what's right, but he doesn't have the ability to carry it out. He doesn't do the good he wants, but the evil that he doesn't want, he keeps on doing. And so I, I can totally see how someone can read those verses and say there is no way that that's a Christian but you have the same problem on the other side. Like, would a non-Christian genuinely say that they hate their sin like he does here? I, I, man, before we're Christians, we don't hate our sin. Like, we, we love our sin. We cherish our sin. We're not grieved over it the way that this, this person sounds like he is. Like, we defend our sin. And so it's hard to see this being a non-Christian saying those things. And so which, which one is it? And so the thing that tips the scales for me in this section is how Paul qualifies the statement about nothing good dwelling in him. Like if he was speaking as a non-Christian one way or the other here, I think he would have stopped there. That nothing good dwells in me, period. Um, but he doesn't. He qualifies that statement by saying that nothing good dwells in him, that is in his flesh. So the question is, what does he mean by that? Um, what, is, what is the flesh here? And so this is another thing we could spend way too much time on. Um, but but what, Paul, what, what Paul's doing from verse 14 to 25 through the rest of this whole section is he's setting up this contrast between what he wants and what he does. And so what you end up with um, on, on the one side is, is what he wants and on the other side is, is what he does. And, but as you go through this section, he kind of swaps out words as he goes back and forth. And so on the one side, you have what, what he wants, what he desires, his inner being and his mind are the, the words that he kind of uses for that side. And then on the other side, you get what he does, you get his actions, you get his members um, and his, his flesh. And then he talks about it being this body of death. And so those are kind of the two sides that he sets up here. So, so we have to be careful, I think, about drawing these lines too sharply. But, but what it seems like Paul is describing here it ultimately is a struggle between his heart and his body. And so you can see that in verse 25, which we'll look at more in a minute, but you can see how this whole passage lands on the struggle between serving the law of God with his mind, but serving the law of sin with his flesh. And so the thing is, I think that's exactly the same contrast that Paul has been using in Romans 6 and that he's going to use in Romans 8. Like in Romans 6, 12, he talked about not letting sin reign in your mortal body and not presenting your members or your body parts to sin. In 6.17, he talks about how we have become obedient from the heart. And then verse 19, he goes back to talking about not presenting your members or your body parts to sin again. See the same thing in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And so, yeah, the more I study this, 
the more convinced I am that all through Romans 6 through 8, not just Romans 7, the contrast and the struggle that Paul presents as marking the Christian life is between our new regenerate heart and our old fallen body. And, and I think that struggle is what's being illustrated in this part of Romans 7 here. And so, so here's what I think Romans 7, 14 to 20, even all the way through verse 25 illustrate for us. You can see this next on your handout here. First, I think it illustrates that our regenerate hearts are already set free from sin. So hear this. We have really, truly, decisively been changed. Like we're not playing games We're not pretending to be something we're not. Through faith in Christ, we have been justified and we have been transformed on the inside and we're really not who we used to be. Like there's a a new spiritual taste for God and the goodness of his law in us. And, And this is what the whole Old Testament was setting up. I mean, just think back to Israel in the Exodus and in the return from exile. So in both of those stories, Israel is physically delivered, first from slavery and then from captivity. But in both situations, their hearts weren't changed, so they continued to disobey the law. Like that's what we see over and over again in the Old Testament. And the the whole point then was that they needed not just a physical deliverance, they needed a spiritual deliverance as well. And so then that's what the prophets begin to promise and look forward to. Like, listen to this from Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So then hearing that, listen to what Paul has just said then happened to us in Romans 6, 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Like this is what Jesus has done for us. Like through his birth, life, death and resurrection, he has delivered us spiritually. His blood has washed away our sin. He's removed our hard, dead, stony hearts and given us new, soft, living hearts that long to and really do begin to walk in obedience to him. Like this is all absolutely true and real for those who've been justified by faith in Jesus, like we talked about earlier in Romans, and that can never be taken away. 
Like that's the deliverance that the Old Testament showed us we desperately needed. Israel showed us more than once that for people to ever be able to live in a relationship with God and in the presence of God, like we were supposed to going all the way back to the garden, we need not only to be delivered from physical slavery and exile, but from spiritual slavery and exile. And Jesus did that for us. Like that's the good news. That's the gospel. But, but what I think happens is that we forget that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension are not the end of the story. And so like, you're gonna have to listen really carefully to what I'm about to say here. Our hope is not just being spiritually delivered from our slavery to sin. And so like, please don't hear me minimizing that. I'm, I'm not. But, but we tend to think and live like being spiritually delivered from sin is the end of the story. That, that that's enough, that, that we have everything we need and there's nothing more coming. And then we're surprised and discouraged when we continue to struggle with the sin in us and the consequences of sin around us. But, but spiritual deliverance from sin isn't the end of the story. Like everything depends on that. Like again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Everything depends on that. But that alone isn't our hope. And, and that's what you see next on your handout there. Next part of this that this teaches us is that our fallen bodies are not yet set free from sin. Oh, like this is our hope. Our hope is that the spiritual deliverance from sin is just the beginning. That one day Jesus will restore all of creation physically and deliver us physically from the curse that sin brought into creation. And so if the lesson from Israel in the Old Testament was that physical deliverance from slavery and exile wasn't enough, that they needed a spiritual deliverance from slavery and exile as well, I think the lesson for us is that we need both too. We need to be delivered both spiritually and physically. We need not just Jesus' first coming, we need his second coming too. It's the whole idea of already, not yet. Like we've, we've used that a lot around here as we've gone through different books that we've studied in the past. Like Jesus is already ruling and reigning as king, but he has not yet returned to finally and completely establish his kingdom here on this earth and finally and completely destroy sin and death. The, the, the not yet does not make the already any less true or real. But if we forget about the not yet and think and live like the already is enough or that it's all there is, we're missing something really important when it comes to living the Christian life. And so we'll come back to this in just a minute when we talk about our response, because like this has been the thing that has been the most helpful for me personally as I've been studying this passage this week. Um, but, but that's what I think the key to understanding what's going on here in, in verse 14 to 20 is, that, that as Christians, we live in this time of already and not yet, where our regenerate hearts are already set free from sin so that we genuinely do see the good, uh, see that the law is good, and we really do want to do that. We really do hate what, that we don't, but our fallen bodies are not yet set free from sin. Like we're waiting for that day. We're longing for that day. And so in the meantime, sin still has its hooks in our flesh and it continues to use the law to stir up sin in us, to deceive us so that we don't do what we want to do. And at one level, that, that should genuinely grieve us. You can hear it in these verses. Like no Christian should want to live like that forever. 
And one thing that, that he doesn't seem to be addressing in this passage is, is progressive sanctification, how Christians do grow in obedience and grow in holiness over time. But, but even then, our experience is that the more that we grow in holiness, the more deeply we see and feel the sin still remaining in us, and, and we hate it. And we long to be finally free, to be set free from sin. So on one level, it should grieve us. But on, on another level, what, what should concern us is not that this struggle characterizes us for now. Because what this battle shows is that you can see this on your handout. The, the ongoing battle with sin is proof that we are no longer who we used to be. Like, I think that's the point of verse 17 and 20. The, those aren't cop-outs. Paul's not saying, oh, well, it's not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just the sin in me. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying in verses 17 and 20. Like those verses only make sense if he's saying the ongoing battle inside of me between the genuine desire to do what is right and good and the failure to do it is proof that I am no longer who I used to be. Like those sinful actions are not who I am anymore. So the ongoing battle with sin is, is actually proof that we are no longer who we used to be. So, oh, there's so much more we could get into, but we've got to, uh, yeah, so to sum all this up then, let's look at verses 21 to 25, and, and we'll see how a Christian responds to sin and the law, uh, how a Christian responds to sin and the law. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul's conclusion to all this then is that he finds another law, he says, in all that he just said in the previous section. And so I, I think here he's using that word law slightly differently. I think he's playing off the word law and he says, here's the principle that this reveals. And so he, he makes several statements then that sum up everything we've been looking at so far. And so there's, there's a ton that we could get into in these verses. But what I wanna do to wrap everything up is just draw out five things that we as Christians can and should say that reflect the truths of Romans 7, 7 to 25 then. So first we say, you can see this on your handout. First we say, God's law is good. I delight in it. I want to do it. You see that in verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We've seen that all throughout the previous verses as well. And so if, if anything that Paul has said in Romans so far has left you thinking that the law is bad, that Paul is intending for you to look down on the law or to move on from the law. I think this provides a healthy balance. Like, there's another whole sermon in here that we don't have time for this morning, but, but Christians love the law and delight in the law. Like, yes, like we saw last week, there's a sense in, a sense in which we are dead to the law. But I, I thought how Nate explained that last week was really, really helpful, that, that dead to the law does not mean that we don't have to follow the law anymore. It means that we're dead to the penalty of the law and we're now free to live in obedience by the power of the spirit. So we don't look for the law to do something for us that it can't do, but we know that the problem isn't in the law, the problem is in us. So we don't jettison the law. We continue to acknowledge that the law is good and we continue to desire to obey it, not to earn anything from it, but because the law teaches us what ought to characterize us 
as Christians. But we also recognize that because of the, of the sin that continues to dwell in us for now, we're, we'll continue to fail to do what we want to do. And so that leads to the next thing that we, that we say. When we fail to do what we want to do, then the second way we respond is to say, I, I hate what I did. Wretched person that I am. See that in the cry at the beginning of verse 24 there. And so the point here is, is this. We don't make peace with the fact that sin still dwells in us. That is not the point here. The point is not to say, well, you're just stuck with that until, until Jesus comes back and so there's nothing you can do. No, like we don't make peace with the fact that sin dwells in us. We hate what sin causes us to do. And we own that the problem is in us and we hate it and we grieve over it. And we don't just hate it and grieve over it on the inside, but we're honest about our ongoing battle with sin and we confess our sin to the Lord and to one another. And so in one of his six sermons on this passage, John Piper said, nobody should want to live this way or settle to live this way. That's not the point. The point is when you live this way, this is the Christian response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no posing, no vaunted perfectionism, Lord, deliver us from a church like that with its pasted smiles and chipper superficiality and blindness to our own failures and consequent quickness to judge others. God, give us the honesty and candor and humility of the Apostle Paul. Like, oh, that's good. Uh, I pray that God would give us a humble view of ourselves and deliver us from fear of confessing sin. Uh, so we say, God's law is good. I delight in it. I want to do it. But we also fail to do what we know is good. And so we're quick to say, I hate what I did. Wretched, man, wretched person that I am. Third, then we also say, that's not who I am anymore. Thanks be to God for the victory I already have in Christ. And so we, we talked about this earlier. This is, the, this is the already side of what's true about us in Christ. In Christ, we are already really decisively dead to sin and free from sin in a way that cannot be undone. Like once you were united to Jesus, you experienced a true deliverance from sin and a true spiritual regeneration that transformed and is transforming your desires. Like you really died to sin and you were really raised to new life with Jesus. And this new person in Christ is, is really who you most deeply and truly are. You are not who you used to be. The sins that used to define you and control you don't define you and control you anymore. Like that's Romans 6. Praise God that we are not who we used to be. But we also say, you can see this next, we also say, I long for the day when my fallen body will be resurrected and the battle inside of me is over. So this is the not yet side of what we talked about just a minute ago. This is what we're waiting for and longing for. This is the cry in verse 24, like who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and this is what's been so helpful for me personally this week. Like, like Paul in that cry, he's not teaching that our inner being is good and our body is bad. Our hope is not that we will be set free from our body. Our hope is that our body will be resurrected. Like that's what we're gonna see in Romans 8. Look at I mean, Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And verses 8, 22 and 23, or chapter 8, verse 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, do you see it? Like we have the first fruits of the Spirit now. The, the first fruits are the, are the first part of the harvest that guarantee that the rest of the harvest is going to come. And so the Spirit in us is the guarantee that the rest of the harvest is going to come. And, and what's the rest of the harvest that we're waiting for? It, it's the redemption of our bodies. Like God is going to give life to our fallen bodies. Like it's Romans 6, 5. It says, for, we have been, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh, one day your body is going to be resurrected. And when that happens, you will no longer be at war with your fallen body anymore. Sin will no longer have its hooks in your body anymore. Like you will be free. Oh, so Paul is crying out for deliverance from this temptation of his fallen body now. But, but more than that, he's looking to the future. He says, who will deliver me? Not who has delivered me. He's, he's crying out for the ultimate deliverance and redemption of his body at the resurrection. Oh, like understand this. Like we're not yet finally and perfectly dead to sin and free from sin, never to be at war with it again. But that day is coming. And we long for that day and we cry out for that day to come soon. And, and remembering that that day is coming changes everything about how you face the ongoing battle with sin. And, and that leads us to the final thing then that we say, until that day comes, I'm gonna keep fighting. So this, this is the other reason I'm convinced that the I in Romans 7 is a believer because if it was a non-Christian where you would expect this whole passage to land would be on the first part of, the, of that verse there, um, where, where he says, thanks be to God um, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where you expect it to land if this is a, a non-Christian talking, is with that cry of, of victory. But that's not where it lands. Instead, it lands on the end of verse 25, where he says, so then, here's the conclusion. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So, so Paul's final conclusion is that until he's delivered from his fallen body at the resurrection, he will continue to be a divided person. Like that's the reality of the Christian life. Until Jesus returns and our bodies are resurrected, we're both in a very real way, not who we were anymore. And at the same time, still who we are. Like we're already becoming what we will be but we're not yet fully what we will be. And, and apart from Romans 6 and 8, that could be a real bummer of an ending. But, but the point of this passage isn't to discourage us or to convince us to make peace with the fact that we won't have complete victory over sin until Jesus comes back. The point is that we should be humbled by who we still are. At the same time, we should have hope in who we will be. And, and that, that humility and that hope should guard us against discouragement and it should guard us against pride and it should motivate us to fight, should motivate us to fight sin, should motivate us to live like who we are. Going back to what we read in, in chapter six, it should motivate us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It should motivate us to not let sin therefore reign in our mortal bodies. It should motivate us to not present our members 
as instruments for unrighteousness, but to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members as instruments for righteousness because sin already, but one day fully and finally will have no dominion over us. Oh, so good. We've said this before from a standpoint of suffering that, that you might suffer for the rest of your life, but you won't suffer forever. And I think this, the point here is that you could say the same thing about sin. You may struggle with that sin for the rest of your life, but you won't struggle with it forever. One day, sin will fully and finally have no dominion over you because of what Jesus has done for us and because of what Jesus will do when he comes and, and resurrects our bodies and restores all of creation. So uh, let that motivate you to fight sin. Let that motivate you to, to be who you are. Let's pray together. Father, this is a tough passage, and I know there's different ways that you could look at this and, and understand this. Um, Lord, I pray that, that what we just talked about has um, stirred our hearts in the way that you intend to this morning. God, I pray that you would humble us through these things, that you would remind us of um, just the weakness of our bodies, the weakness of our fallen bodies, the sin that's still in us, it still dwells in us, and that, that keeps us from living the way that we want to live, um, and that we wouldn't get too high of a picture of our ability to put all that behind us from what we've heard so far. But God, I pray that the opposite wouldn't be true as well, that, that we would not walk away from these last several weeks and the call to be who we are, discouraged by the ongoing battle with sin in us, but that we would see that we're in this period between Jesus' two comings and that in, in one sense, he has decisively defeated sin in us. We are set free from it. We are dead to it. Uh, we're dead to the law. We're, we're alive to God. We're slaves of righteousness and that we would fight to live like who we are, but that we would remember that until Jesus returns and until the second coming until our bodies are resurrected, that, that this is just the battle that's gonna characterize us. And Lord, let that not cause us then to back down from the battle, to make peace with sin, but let, it, let that motivate us to fight. Let that motivate us to be who we are and who we will be. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to remember that just the, what, we, what our hope is, that our hope is that yes, we have been set free spiritually from sin, and one day we will be set free physically forever from sin and it will no longer have dominion over us. And so God, I pray that, that, would, that you would do that in our hearts this morning, that you would encourage us with these things and that you would stir us up against the sin that's still in us to fight it, um, to not let it reign anymore in our mortal bodies, to not present ourselves to it as slaves anymore because we've been set free. That's not who we are anymore. Um, but that we would not be discouraged and crushed in the ongoing battle, that we would see that as just, that's, yes, that's where we are right now. And we long for that. We grieve over it. We long for that to be over. And so come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.